All of us are on a complicated journey of faith, pursuing truth and deeper knowledge of God. But how do we know we're doing it right? Many of you know that faith is a complicated thing, and it can be a painful and difficult journey, and far too often we are not given a space where we can safely address the complications and issues that arise naturally. My name is Joshua Patterson, and one of my best friends, Marty Frederick, and I have agreed to join each other in creating exactly that kind of space where questions and critical thinking are welcome. We want to look honestly at the issues and questions plaguing the Christian church today and to genuinely seek out what it means to live like Jesus in our ever-changing world, in our expanding universe, and in our pluralistic society. We believe that doubt is not the enemy of faith, but perhaps one of its greatest allies. We think that the Christian life is more about asking the right questions than it is about finding the answers. And we believe we are being called to continually ask those questions, renewing our minds and rethinking our faith in the process. Thank you for joining us on that journey. All right, well, welcome to another episode of the Rethinking Faith podcast. As always, I'm Josh Patterson, and with me today is my good friend and co-host, Marty Frederick. Marty, what is going on, man? Not much, Josh. How are you? I'm a little bit tired, not going to lie, but I'm, I'm yeah. hanging in there, doing good. Yeah, this uh, past weekend uh, was my best friend, Brandon. Uh, it was his bachelor party. And we stayed oh. up until, you know, ungodly hours of the night. And so kind of tired, but it was good. Excited for Brandon getting married in a couple weeks. And so you I've guys been... stayed up till like 11, 15, 11, 30, drank like a bunch of Mountain Dew and ate candy and like watched a movie that your mom played... rented from Blockbuster? Yeah, and played Halo. Wow. And so like <laughs> that was an intense night. That <laughs> a really <laughs> intense night. <laughs> like, you know, that's... Because when I was a kid, Josh, like when you'd say like we had a crazy night, like you stayed up to like 1130, maybe 1145 if you could like push it a little bit if you had to sleep over. And like you'd ask your mom, can you please get us two, two liters of Mountain Dew? And then like I had a friend named Nate and he and I bought, uh, this was when we were in high school, so I was a little bit older. My mom didn't do this. We did. We bought a two liter of Mountain Dew each and a dozen Krispy Kreme donuts. And we tried to see who could finish the whole thing. Um, and we had like three, we were like three donuts in and like a third of the Mountain Dew down and we felt so sick. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. But I'm sure, I'm sure the party was a little bit more tame than that. You know, that's pretty intense. Yeah. We don't go that hard, bro. That's, that's a bit much. (laughs) That does take me back to middle school though. But, uh, one real quickly, just, uh, tangently, uh, one thing that we used to do at, at sleepovers like that in middle school is, do you remember that gum called bubble tape? It came in like a circle. Yeah. We would all go to the store and buy one and then see who could put the whole thing in their mouth and chew it up. <laughs> it's absolutely disgusting. And uh, yeah, I have since repented of my sins. <laughs> Did you ever do chubby Absolute. bunny with the marshmallows? Like see how many oh, marshmallows? You yeah, we had mouth? to do that. That's like an old school youth group game, Marty. You're, yeah, yeah, you're throwing it back now. I know. But there you know, go. I, I, don't, I don't think we came here to talk about chubby bunnies or. I, <laughs> I would hope not. I would hope yeah. not. It'd be kind of a, a, a boring interview. But we do, to your point, there is a rather large spider going across my floor, and I'm terrified of them. Stay over there. Apologies. Um, <laughs> we do have a guest with us today. Uh, and so with us is Dominique Dubois. I forget how he said this here last name. Gilliard. Ah, got it. Awesome. Dominique, how are you? I'm good. Excited to be on with you all. Awesome. Thank you so much for uh, putting up with our our nonsense uh, (laughs) stories of Mountain Dew and bubblegum. We're uh, glad that you're here and and appreciate you taking some time to to come out and hang out with us today. Yeah. And uh, Dominique, um, so we have a question we ask every guest. Uh, It's a really big deal to us. Um, Who is your favorite ice hockey team? I do not have one. <laughs> I do not watch hockey. <laughs> all right. All right. Yeah. And, and there's been, there's been many a guest like you 
there's also been many a guest they just take a guess at a name like they're like oh, i think i like uh oh. the blue jays and we're like no that's, that's I, can, I mean i could totally name names like the chicago black blackhawks and toronto maple leaves and like i mean i'm conversant but i don't watch it <laughs> sure. no, yeah, that, that's totally cool so uh, so with that, Dominique, can you just tell us a little bit about you? Who are you? What kind of things do you do? And uh, give us a little bit about your faith upbringing. Yeah, so um, I serve uh, my nine to five is that I serve and it's actually not nine to five, but uh, I serve as the National Director of Racial Righteousness and Reconciliation for the Evangelical Covenant Church, uh, which is a fancy way of basically saying I am a pastor to pastors to help them make connections between faith, race, and discipleship. Um, I produce curriculum for our denomination in that regard and also what we call immersive discipleship experiences where we kind of take people out of their everyday rhythm and kind of take them into kind of sacred spaces for the fight for racial justice and equality in our nation and to really ask really uh, deep questions around our faith and what is our uh, faith commission us to in the midst of racial injustice not being a reality of yesteryear but very much a very present uh, reality that uh, is confronting us right now. Uh, so what do we learn from the great cloud of witnesses who've gone before us and how can their wisdom and kind of uh, witness and legacy kind of spur us on. Um, so do those kind of things. Um, outside of that, um, I serve on a couple of boards. So I'm on the board of director for the Christian Community Development Association, which is an organization that's committed to being uh, going intentionally into disenfranchised, uh, impoverished communities and trying to do community development based off biblical principles. Um, I also on the board for Evangelicals for Justice, and then I also serve as an uh, adjunct professor at North Park Theological Seminary, um, where I get the privilege of uh, teaching um, courses on racial righteousness and theology, but most specifically um, get a chance to participate in uh, a restorative uh, arts program there uh, where we provide master's level education for incarcerated students in a maximum security prison right outside of Chicago. And so um, those are kind of some of the things that I do. Um, I'm originally from the metro Atlanta area, uh, so right outside of the city. Um, and uh, born and raised there, went to undergrad at uh, Georgia State University, which is right in the heart of the city. Um, went on and did my first master's in the Appalachian Mountain region of the country. So a very dramatic shift from Atlanta culture to that, um, where I uh, studied uh, history with a focus on race, gender, and class uh, from the 19th to 21st century. I went on and did um, a MDiv at North Park, um, focused on uh, urban, just uh, urban ministry with a focus on racial justice and uh, kind of went on from there to do pastoral ministry uh, for about six years in the Oakland, California area. Um, and then came back and uh, am serving in the role that I'm serving in right now and uh, headquartered out of Chicago. That's great. So you're kind of close by me. I live up by the border of Wisconsin. So yeah. Illinois, but I, I grew up in this area and um, and that's just so great. I mean, everything you were just listing off, it's like, you know, like all the different, like what you do, like wh where you went to school. I, I mean, I, it just makes me personal. Like, I want to know you better. <laughs> like, I want to, <laughs> I want to get involved in the things that you're doing. Cause that's like, you are doing the things that I think people today specifically, but I mean, all throughout, I mean, I mean the last, you know, who, who knows how, how many years, but even just now specifically, like everyone needs to be listening, like getting those resources that you're talking about that you help provide. And um, so that's just really great. That's awesome. Well, there's, there's room to join. So come on board. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah. And one of those really awesome resources uh, that you developed uh, is a book that came out uh, through IVP called Rethinking Incarceration, Advocating uh, for Justice That Restores. And so that's actually what we uh, wanted to chat with you about today. Uh, it was a great book. I really, really enjoyed it. Super helpful. 
Um, and basically our first question is why did you write this book? What compelled you to do so? Yeah, so I begin the book in chapter one really kind of talking about uh, what really kind of made this something that had to be a part of my life. Um, so I was a senior in undergrad, uh, like I said, at Georgia State University, uh, which is right in the heart of the city of Atlanta. And about 10 miles away from my campus, there was a community that was stigmatized for drug trafficking, so much so that they've actually created a documentary on it called uh, Snow in the Bluff, uh, that really talks about uh, that community and how much drug proliferation was coming out of that community. Um, so because of that, uh, there were some law enforcement officers who were deployed to that community to do stakeouts to try to discern where the epicenter for drug trafficking was flowing from so they could actually, you know, curtail it. And so uh, in the midst of the stakeouts, one of the officers said that he had discerned where the epicenter was and he went to a judge and petitioned for something known as a no-knock warrant. A no-knock warrant is a piece of legislation that allows law enforcement to come to a home and to actually invade the premise without having to stop, announce their presence as law enforcement, or display a warrant in a way that they would have to do in any other context. Uh, disproportionately, no-knock warrants are given out in impoverished communities of color, um, and they're most often associated with drug searches. Uh, the rationale for no-knock warrant is that uh, when it comes to drugs, um, Evidence can be destroyed quickly uh, by being flushed down the toilet along with paraphernalia. So officers need to be able to get in quickly and seize it before evidence can be destroyed. So uh, the judge made his case, I mean, the officer made his case to the judge. The judge uh, granted the no-knock warrant. And two nights later, him and two other officers, a few nights later, him and two other officers came back back to the home that he said that was serving as the epicenter for drug trafficking. Uh, and they per, uh, perform something called a dramatic entry raid. Um, a dramatic entry raid is when um, law enforcement comes, particularly SWAT teams with full military grade weaponry and armory. They bulldoze the door, usually with shotguns drawn. Uh, they did that in this case at three o'clock in the morning and the home that they invaded was solely occupied by a 92 year old grandmother. Um, and she heard the commotion. She thought somebody was coming in to try to rob her. She goes to try to grab protection. Officers say that they think that she's trying to flee the scene. They deployed 38 bullets and fatally strike her five times in her living room. Um, as she bleeds out, uh, the officers continue to perform the search and they search the entire house and the search turns up empty. There's no drugs no drug paraphernalia, even though this is the home that the officer said that he knew that the epicenter of drug trafficking was flowing from. Uh, so the officers start to freak out after they realize there are no drugs um, because they want to know how do they legitimate what just transpired. Uh, so ultimately, they craft a narrative um, that early morning in her living room and then make the unfortunate choice to plant drugs in her house to make it look like it was a botched drug raid um, and that she was just killed in the midst of the raid uh, going wrong. Uh, so the case goes to trial and those officers stick to the narrative that they composed early that morning in Katherine Johnston's living room. Um, and uh, they stick to that narrative until they find out that they're caught in their lie. And at that point, they confessed to everything. They confessed to killing her without cause. They confessed to planting drugs in her house. And the first officer is found to have fabricated evidence that he presented to the judge that got him the clearance for the no-knock warrant, which legitimated the whole interaction. Um, and so when sentencing came down, though, after all of those confessions, the officers, the three officers were sentenced from a range of five to 10 years which is a fraction of the time that Katherine Johnston would have gotten sentenced to if she actually would have been involved in drug trafficking. So at that point, I knew there was something critically wrong with our criminal justice system. But when I went to school the next day, um, like I said, my school was 10 miles away from where this happened. My professors were telling us as concerned citizens, we had an ethical and moral responsibility to go advocate for legislative change so that vulnerable people like Katherine Johnston didn't continue to be systemically preyed upon like this. And I said, yes, that feels right, that feels good, that feels true. But then when I went to church on Sunday, and my church, instead of being 10 miles away from where this happened, it was 15 miles away from where this happened, 
my church had absolutely nothing to say about it. And I said, if there's anything that should be commissioning me to kind of stand up for the least of these and to defend the humanity uh, and the dignity of vulnerable people, it should be my relationship with Jesus Christ and not just my academic institution. And so from that point on, God just really put a burden on my heart uh, for how consistently scripture actually speaks to this issue and commissions the body of Christ to be engaged in this issue and to really kind of help awaken the church to its complicity with the problem, but its ability to actually be a real source for change and transformation in the midst of the brokenness that we're experiencing. Yeah. No, and I, I, man, um, that's such a, well, I'll say it and it's, it's going to sound like the basic, but it, it's i mean i mean it further like that's such a a noble reason to to say i need to pick up i, I something has to be done here you know and um as i as i look up i i just i just googled katherine johnston just to just because i was curious um and it is that she was a elderly black woman um and and i'm and i i'm willing to bet that the sentencing for these officers would have been stricter had she have been an elderly white woman um and, and, and I think that that, I mean, obviously you didn't speak to that because I was, that, that's, we're just, we're just pontificating. There's no real way to know that for sure. Um, but as I just read, as I heard you talking about that and just kind of skimmed a little bit from the, it was Wikipedia, but um, it just seems to me like so much of that was done in a way that, you know, I mean, there's no way that they couldn't have known that it's the person that was there was not a drug trafficker. Um, but, you know, as, as I'm hearing you talk though, I, I'm just curious and just on a brief just in a brief way, you have a few paragraphs in your introduction that you that talk about uh, how how to police in a nuanced and helpful way, and I'm sure that with Katherine Johnston, those those things could have been applied to this. Can you just speak onto that briefly? I mean, I would just say, you know, this the reality of the casualties that no knock warrants produce in our country is not a novelty. I mean, everybody recently has heard the name Breonna Taylor. Well, Breonna Taylor was killed through the execution of a no-knock warrant. And so I think uh, when we think about the nuances in regards to uh, the enforcement of the law, I mean, there's all these conversations going on right now around defunding the police. And in many regards, what those conversations are saying is like, how do we take a sober look at what's transpiring in society and be honest about the fact that a lot of instances that police get called into, they're actually not the best trained professionals to actually be coming in and responding to the crisis on our hands. So Mm -hmm. how do we look at that and soberly say, hey, if police actually haven't been adequately trained in conflict de-escalation in regards to somebody with a mental health impairment, well, who is the medical professional who has been trained? And how Mm -hmm. do we start to deploy them to those circumstances? But, you know, it goes to the whole range of things, which we'll talk about more, but like another example would be school resource officers um, and the role that they play in the school to prison pipeline. Like um, right now, there are only 12 states that require uh, law enforcement to be trained in student-specific cognitive development before actually serving as a school resource officer. So what that means is that you have law enforcement who is not properly trained to be serving in the capacity that they are, which is why we consistently see all these videos of uh, school resource officers, usually men, usually white men, uh, using overzealous force against little children, particularly young girls of color. Um, And we see this habitual pattern because they have not been trained properly to function in that way, which means that we're actually putting police in a very bad situation that makes people have a very negative uh, kind of perception and interaction with them. And it's not because of them, it's because of the situation that societally we continue to put them in because we're not willing to kind of have some of these difficult conversations. I know for some people, the phrase uh, defund the police is just like alarmist. And so they can't even get to the point that we can actually have a substantive conversation about the need that exists because some people can't get beyond kind of that, that label. So that's really yeah. kind of what I would say in response to your, your question. Yeah. And, you know, it's interesting too. It's, there's an interesting parallel in my mind of, you know, pastors and counselors 
um, with along with police or school resource officers and like de-escalation training. You know, when someone comes to a pastor with a a pretty interestingly severe psychological issue, most pastors are trained and told, "You're not a counselor. You need to refer this person to a professional, not try to handle this on your own." Um, and it's interesting that police are not trained to do the types of things that they're asked, many of the things that, the, that they're asked to do, um, and yet they're being asked to do those things. Um, so th there, there seems to be wisdom, in, like in kind of what you're saying is, you know, bringing people to a place of saying either the training needs to be better, or we need to be calling the right people <laughs> for the right things and asking or, the right people to act on the right things. Or to both and. Um, yeah, I know yeah. that's, that's just such a revolutionary yeah. idea. <laughs> but, <laughs> but, but the both right. and. But I, I think you're, yeah, you're spot on. But I also want to say, like, but part of the problem with pastors is that I think we are also so trained to think of ourselves as a kind of one size fits all like we have to respond mm, yeah. to everything mm -hmm. that there are far too many pastors who actually think they're they're psychiatrists and therapists right. and they try to play a role that honestly they're not educationally equipped to do and in those yeah. cases mm -hmm. i know a lot of people are just doing the best that they can but many times we're actually doing harm because yeah. we're not humble enough to actually say like thank you for pastorally trusting me with this but i'm going to actually now invite somebody else who is properly trained into yeah. this equation so perhaps there's an interesting parallel to uh people that are like our podcast a lot of times focuses on people that have been hurt by the church and seeks to help those people perhaps there's an interesting parallel um just across the board and people doing the things that they're not trained to do <laughs> and not not receiving the training that they're that they're supposed to have uh to bring people from one place to the other but yeah uh, so but in that vein i just say you know the old adage is hurt people hurt people mm -hmm. and yeah. while that's mm -hmm. true what i've been finding more so in this work is that traumatized people who don't have the root causes of their trauma identified and addressed go out and cause trauma in the world. Mm -hmm. um, and so as we really learn, take seriously like studies like ACEs or um, adverse childhood experiences, and we actually understand their connection to um, the criminal justice system, when we understand their connection to a lot of the actual violence and brokenness that we're experiencing in our world, part of what we're seeing, particularly through uh, initiatives like restorative justice, are that when you actually get to the point where you can actually help people identify and start to address the root causes of that trauma, that's where healing, true healing actually is able to take place. For sure. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, for sure. That And that's also good. And it reminds me too, like, I think something that um, you both have kind of touched on is a lot of times we, we tend to focus on uh, just specific individuals rather than addressing the system at large. And so, uh, Dominique, you, you, with your reference to policing, you know, a lot of times the officers themselves get scapegoated, which many chances and times they, sh like, they should be, you know, um, reprimanded for the the poor things they carry out, but there's also a larger problem there. There's a system that they are, you know, um, partaking in that uh, also needs to be uh, looked at. And so part of that system is this, this idea of mass incarceration uh, within the U.S. I think it's, it's said um, that the U.S. has more people locked up than any anybody else. Um, and I want to kind of go a little bit further back than prior to like the whole idea of the war on drugs, which I want to ask you about. Um, but prior to that, with things like uh, slavery, black, co uh, black codes and neo-slavery, um, like what role does that have to play in what we're seeing with mass incarceration today? Yeah, I think that history really forces us to reckon with the fact that um, our criminal justice system is rooted in a history and a legacy of racism and white supremacy. And I know those are uncomfortable conversations <laughs> for a lot of us, but um, the, the evidence is undeniable um, when you actually go back. And I think part of the reasons why we haven't had those conversations is because most people really do think that mass incarceration is just a byproduct of the war on drugs. Um, and so our analysis doesn't push us to actually go back to the actual roots of the system, which emerge 
really right after Reconstruction ends. Um, and so quick history lesson for folk, um, just in case, you know, I know some people don't love history like I do. Um, so um, in 1865, you have the Emancipation Proclamation that's passed that ends the triangular slave trade. Um, then you have a 12-year period of time where there are federal troops sent down throughout the South to make sure that Black people won't be stymied in their pursuit for equality. Um, in this period, it's really critically important to realize that in 1865, it is illegal for Black people in the South um, who are enslaved to learn how to read or write. Twelve years later, when Reconstruction ends, there are 1,400 Black people who are, have successfully held political office. Now, I want you to think about that. Twelve years prior, you couldn't read or write. Twelve years later, 1,400 people are successfully holding political office. That's critically important because it helps us realize that it's never been a question about Black ability, but it's been always been a question about Black access. And when Black folk were given access equitably to participate, we saw a, a, a thrust towards racial equality that we've never seen in our nation before or after um, during this 12-year period of time of Reconstruction. Well, the logical thing should, the logical next question should be, well, why did that period of racial thrust towards equity end? Well, we all know why it ends, but unfortunately our school system doesn't like crystallize this for us. And that's the Hayes-Tilden Compromise. So there's this backdoor agreement that says that in exchange for some votes that are going to inform the presidential election, we'll take the federal troops outside of the north, out of the south and allow you all to kind of re, re, structure society in the way that you desire, which is basically to re-articulate white supremacy. Um, and it really manifests itself in what I call the unholy trinity. So you have three big things that happen. So you have the emergence of sharecropping, which is essentially debt peonage. Um, then you have the emergence of black codes, which were laws that were literally taken from slave codes and reinterpreted so that they could be reapplied after the Emancipation Proclamation. And then you have the emergence of the KKK and the terroristic practice of lynching. So when we talk about black codes uh, for folk, just to give you kind of a little bit of an example of what we're talking about, because most people are pretty familiar with sharecropping, so I won't spend time there. But black codes were laws that were really applied primarily across the South, but there actually were some black codes in the North too. I was just actually reading up on um, the fact that Illinois had black codes um, as well. Um, but these were laws that were primarily applied across the South that essentially criminalized black life um, that made it almost impossible for a black person to not be in violation of the law in some way shape or form so like to give you an example because I know for some people that seems inflammatory so to give you an example of what I'm talking about um, there were vagrancy laws on the books that said that if a black person couldn't prove that they were employed at any given time they could be incarcerated simply for being unemployed um, there were laws like the apprenticeship law in South Carolina that said that if a black child was born to parents who were deemed unfit, and you can't see me, but I'm doing air quotes because I want you to notice how ambiguous that is, who gets it to determine if you're unfit or not? Um, so if a child was born to a parent who was deemed unfit or, um, that boys would legally be given to their their former slave owner until the age of 21 and girls until the age of 18. And so these were laws that were just like seriously like criminalizing black life. And because of this, you saw this huge emergence of black folk because think about this, coming out of a system of free labor up until 1865, you have a 12 year period of empowerment, and now all of the enforcement that makes sure that you're gonna be free has been taken away. You're just gonna get fired like that. Like there's no accountability. And so all of these people are falling victim to laws like the vagrancy laws, and they start to get incarcerated. And you see this huge emergence of the criminal justice system. And you see that it starts with this very clear racial disparity. 
Well, why all that's important is because of the loophole that exists within the 13th Amendment, which says that slavery in our nation is illegal except as a punishment for a crime. So since all of these people have been criminalized and incarcerated, then they can now be uh, come part of this new system of enslavement, neo-slavery, that just honestly isn't unfortunately taught within our school systems. So most people have no clue that this even existed, but it's this um, exploitative system called convict leasing. Um, so in convict leasing, because of the loophole, incarcerated people are leased out to corporations, um, companies and former plantation owners doing the exact same slave labor under the exact same dehumanizing circumstances for the exact same no pay. Um, and so I'll just give you a couple um, stats real quick and then I'll turn it back over. So in Alabama, um, they had the best records for convict leasing out of any state. We know that in Alabama alone, at least 200,000 black men were leased out as convicts and that the money earned in 1890 from convict leasing in Alabama alone would be equivalent to $4.1 million today. Leased convicts could be leased out for as little as $9 a month. And in 1898, convict leasing supplies 73% of the state of Alabama's entire annual state revenue. So we, we need to understand that convict leasing as a economic strategy doesn't just come out of nowhere, but it is actually a Southern strategy to resuscitate a deflated economy after the Emancipation Proclamation. And convict leasing doesn't just, isn't something that just happened by happenstance, and it's not just something that just happened for a few years, but convict leasing in our nation is actually legal all the way up until 1921. And then even after that, it persists for another 20 years underground. So convict leasing is not fully finished in the U.S. until 1941, well after we're taught that slavery in our nation was ended. Mm. And, and so it, to me, it seems like slavery went from in many ways a private enterprise you know where specific slave owners would own individuals to a corporate and even politicized and state funded i mean funded you know when however you want to look at it uh, and enterprise where it was no longer a private thing it, and so the the greed of legislators they saw that as an opportunity to make money off the backs of the people that they, you know, were, 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 were looking to make money off of before, but they just figured out a new way to do it. Would, would you say that that's an accurate? Uh, <laughs> I would say that that's accurate. And I, as I, there was real pressure on the South to figure out how it was going to fiscally sustain itself because it was dependent on solely dependent on free labor up until 1865. And the North had already started to move towards mechanization. And so now you're trying to compete with uh, another part of the country that already has infrastructure and investment, and you have none of that. Um, so this really becomes a, a way to try to stay in the game. But I do want to be clear about the fact that the North very much profited off of slavery too. Yeah. Um, and you know, so the 1619 series does a great job in unpacking that from everything from the fact that, you know, slaves were insured. And most of the biggest insurance companies in our nation today have their roots and their roots economically and their prosperity in slavery and the system of um, providing insurance on slaves, um, particularly during the Middle Passage, where people would get paid whether people made it through the passage or not. And we know that most, you know, so a great deal of people actually never even made it through the Middle Passage. So um, I just want to be clear about that, because I think sometimes we, we fall into the bad habit of scapegoating the South for a national sin, um, and it kind of absolves the rest of the country. Um, but as we're seeing right now, uh, this is a national reality. Um, and we have to reckon with it as such. Yeah. Well, and yeah. Um, it's just it. It's. I mean, even after, even after knowing these things, you know, it, it, it just every time you hear them again, it, it there's there's a there's a there's an impact that I personally feel uh, like where it 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 impacts me mentally 
uh, in a way that, you know, and it's, it's hard to, it's hard to describe, not because it impacts me personally, because I was involved or anything like that, but because it impacts me because there's such, there's such a deep hurt that has been done. Um, and just kind of, I mean, not to gloss over all this time, um, but so I guess the next question would be, and it kind of it kind of turns us a little bit in a slightly different direction, but not really. Um, so can you tell us what is the war on drugs? Uh, what what role does it play in mass incarceration? Yeah, so the war on drugs is like the the second. It's like the next big explosion that we see within our criminal justice system. Um, so in 1971. Uh, it's launched, but it's launched after in 1970, there was this national kind of survey that was put out to citizens uh, asking them what was the biggest issue facing America? Like what was the, the thing that we needed to be most attuned to and actually responding to try to counteract? And uh, drugs was on the list, but it ranked very, very low on the survey in regards to what people were actually saying we needed to invest in and earmark dollars to try to to correct. Um, but in spite of that, um, the, the choice, the president made the choice that that was actually gonna be the new initiative, the rally cry, and there was going to be um, the initiation of new language like uh, law and order uh, to mobilize people into uh, trying to speak into uh, how do we address the war on drugs. Now, one of the things that starts happened right around this time too is you have the emergence of crack on the scene um, and you uh, start to see uh, the ways in which this language of uh, law and order starts to really uh, function as a dog whistle politics that actually allows people to be talking about a racial problem uh, and without ever having to use the language of race. Um, you start to see uh, political talk get more sophisticated in that manner. Um, and so uh, what happens is with the war on drugs, we, this is the first time we really start to see the emergence of special task force like uh, the DEA and you get the SWAT teams and you get all of the militarization of the police starts to happen. All these things start to happen um, in 1971. Um, and we see that um, we start to see the criminalization of drugs in a way that we hadn't seen before. Um, and uh, drugs are seen as like this huge societal issue that is rooted in uh, kind of individual morality and ethics um, and the brokenness of communities and you start to see the pathology pathologizing uh, particularly black and brown communities in association in a way that's very different than the way that we are responding to the opioid crisis right now um, that's disproportionately happening in white contexts. Um, and so at this point, we finally have had uh, significant uh, police chiefs in major cities come out and bluntly say the war on drugs was an utter failure because you can't incarcerate yourself out of addiction. And so what we're really seeing is like, and the war on drugs that basically said that um, the problem was an individual moral problem um, and it was not a public health issue, but it was a criminality issue where, where what we're seeing now with um, opioids is that we're responding to it as if it's a public health crisis and we're not actually uh, stigmatizing and I would even say dehumanizing folk who have fallen uh, victim to uh, narcotic uh, substance abuse addiction. Um, and because of that, our policies look very different. Um, so the first go around our policies were lock them up, throw away the key, keep us and our families safe from these super predators um, and these violent offenders who get on this smack and can't control themselves and they become menaces to society. Where today, where the face of the victim is different, um, we're taking a very different approach. Now, hopefully, there is more than just race that is informing that different approach. Hopefully, we really have learned some lessons from uh, the way that we responded to uh, primarily crack, but also let's be honest about the fact that we criminalized marijuana too, which, um, and the fact that, you know, how, 
how unethical it is right now that we have states who have legalized marijuana who are making huge money off of marijuana, but there's still people in their states who are serving time for marijuana convictions. Um, and so I think we just need to have more integrity in how we have these conversations and uh, really hope that they're not all um, race and class profoundly inform all of these conversations. Um, I think we first have to have the integrity to name that. Um, but then we also have to say that, you know, we we do give people grace and believe that they actually learn from some of their mistakes and that they're actually trying to allow those mistakes to inform what does it look like for us to move forward and create better, um, more faithful legislation. But one of the ways that, one of the reasons why people are still suspicious about that uh, would be uh, real quick, uh, the classic disparity uh, differencing and sentencing between crack and powder cocaine. So, um, up until 2010, for the person who had possessed or distributed the exact same amount of crack and powder cocaine, if there were two people and they had the exact same amount, the person who possessed or was distributing crack would have gotten a hundred times more severe sentence than the person who possessed or distributed powder. Um, now, disproportionately, black and brown people use crack because it's a lower price, uh, easier drug to uh, come by, and cocaine is disproportionately a higher class drug that is disproportionately used by whites. Um, so it was not until 2010 that we legislatively tried to reckon with that at all. And under the Fair Sentencing Act, we said we were going to actually fix the disparity, but we didn't fix it, we reduced the disparity. So the disparity went down from 100 to 1. Uh, it went from 100 to 1 to 18 to 1. And so right now, to this day, there's still an 18 to 1 disparity that's on the books. So what that really does, it really infuses and integrates racism within the actual legislation. Um, and one of the reasons why we see black and brown people disproportionately overpopulated in our prisons and jails is not because they're committing more criminal activities many times, it's because they're more punitively sentenced for the same offense. And this would be the classic example of that. Yeah, it's crazy. So basically, what we're seeing is that um, legislation, law, has been used uh, and written specifically to target individual uh, communities or groups of people. Um, and so racism is kind of, uh, the racism that is, is built into those laws is kind of more subtle now than it was in the past. And also, it seems like what we're seeing as well is that prison is kind of like a for-profit thing, almost. <laughs> So we're making well, money off the backs of people. I mean, literally in two ways. So um, one, when we think about um, the production of commerce behind bars, uh, most folks aren't really even familiar with the fact that like people behind bars are producing everyday household items, like things that are just like integral parts of our lives, but they're also producing things that are integral to the fabric of our society. So like uh, uniforms that our children wear when they play sports, maybe behind bars, um, license plates, um, but they're doing everything from like making airplane parts for Boeing to um, being on in California being asked to actually go and fight the wildfires that initiate every single year. So folk behind bars, um, in the federal and state level are being exploited for their labor uh, because oftentimes they're being paid uh, anywhere from 93 cents to four dollars a day for a full day's work for work to the reality of actual private prisons which are for profit industries um, so private prisons come on the scene in 1984 um, before there there before that there was no notion of a for-profit carceral institution. Um, but the reason why pro for, uh, the reason why private prisons actually even come on the scene is because of what you just asked about a few minutes ago, which is the war on drugs. So we started to incarcerate people at such an astronomical rate that we literally ran out of space within our state and federal facilities to hold people. And we saw that this was actually starting to emerge as a problem in 1980. So this was the critical year where we could start to ask questions around the fact, like, is a 
substance abuse and mental health? I mean, um, a public health issue, or is it something that is rooted in the criminality of an individual or the ethics and morality of an individual? We could ask questions around um, the legitimacy of mandatory minimums. We could ask questions around, um, you know, should some of the things that we are actually incarcerating people for be treated as uh, with medical interventions. Um, but instead of asking those questions or coming to the questions, the more responsible answer to those questions, what we chose to do is that we said, okay, well, if we're running out of state space within our state and federal facilities, what do we do? Well, the decision was made that we actually were going to outsource the responsibility of building new prisons to private industry entities that were going to be for-profit institutions. So the first uh, private prison comes on the scene in Tennessee in 1984, um, and they actually became a really critical piece of the DNA of our criminal justice system um, to the point that uh, at its height, private prisons were... Um, uh, incarcerating about 15% of the nation's population. Um, and why private prisons are so detrimental is because uh, they actually do, like you said, uh, exist to make profit. So to give people a, a small example of how this works is, is that, um, so private prisons function pretty much the same way a hotel does. So every single night a hotel is open and they have a room that's vacant, they're losing money thought that vacant room. Well, the same thing is true for private prisons, except instead of rooms, it's sales. And because of that, um, when private prisons come into a community, which are usually sparsely populated communities out in the middle of nowhere where the injustice that happens is out of sight and out of mind, um, though they come in with a bed minimum contract, which says that every single night, at least this percentage of the facility must be filled. And if it's not filled, the private prison can actually sue the community that it comes into relationship with for being in violation of contract. These contracts generally range from 70% to 100% occupancy. And yes, there are private prisons that have 100% occupancy rates. Um, Arizona has three of them. Um, and it says that literally if every single night every single facility, every, every single sale isn't filled, that community can be sued as being in violation of contract. So that ensures that they're gonna make a certain amount of money um, because of the occupancy. And the private prisons also cut corners um, that make them less safe for both people who work in the facility and people who are uh, incarcerated within the facility. And I talk about all of that in the book and I actually give an example of when a private prison sued a community for being in violation of contract. So it's not just theoretical. Yeah. That's that section like blew my mind. <laughs> I was like, this is actually insane. Um, but just so uh, for sake of time, I want to turn to uh, kind of what the church has to say about this. You know, what does what how does scripture apply this? I know there's a really big, important aspect uh, in your book uh, about the prison pipeline and uh, the, you know, various pipelines, not just school to prison, but you listed others as well. Um, that are really important. And so listeners, go buy the book. <laughs> it's super important. You, uh, there's, there's so much packed into this book that uh, we, you know, we just don't have time to cover. Uh, Let but, me just name sure, the five pipelines for people just so they know what they are. So okay. it's the uh, war on drugs, the school to prison pipeline, the deinstitutionalization of mental health facilities, uh, the privatization of prisons, and a parallel war to the war on drugs, which just hadn't been coined as a war, and that's the war on immigration. Mm -hmm. So those are the five pipelines that are really funneling people into our uh, criminal justice system today. Yeah, and reading about uh, a ton of those were so uh, mind-boggling as well. Like the, the mental health bit, just, man, um, that one was difficult for me to read because I know I, I go to therapy. I've dealt with you know, mental health issues, depression, anxiety, uh, things like that. So it's pretty crazy. But let's, um, let's look at the church now, uh, because I, it seems to me that the church, uh, maybe unknowingly or maybe knowingly, uh, has kind of aided in and supported this idea of mass incarceration. So how have you seen the church doing that? And then after that, I want to talk some about like um, the idea of biblical justice, restorative justice, things like that. So how do you think the church has maybe aided this issue that we have today? 
Yeah, so I'll give two quick examples. Um, one is, uh, well, they're both theological. Um, so the first would be um, the, ro the roles that chaplains have played um, in the creation of what's normative within our criminal justice system today. So there have been amazing chaplains, uh, Christian chaplains who have really fought to make our criminal justice system a much more equitable, humane place. But there's also been some chaplains who came from a much more punitive kind of theological position who uh, really saw prisons as a uh, a space for suffering, a furnace of, of, of affliction is kind of the terminology that's most popular to uh, describe their theological point of view. But the thought really is that prisons have to be a place of suffering and misery and of pain so that uh, heathens, quote unquote, can understand the depth of their depravity. And in the midst of actually getting to that lowest point, they will come into a revelation of their need for a savior. And so um, because of that, there were chaplains who kind of advocated for actual like physical abuse uh, being as part of a response to when uh, 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 someone who was incarcerated uh, kind of acted up or, or wasn't in alignment with the rules um, and they would be beaten and bludgeoned. Um, and that would be part of what it meant for them to come to hit rock bottom so they could understand how much they needed a savior. So um, that's part of our history and our legacy, uh, very uh, shameful part of it. Um, and it definitely informed uh, how punitive and corrective uh, our carceral state became. Um, and then uh, the other piece I'll say is, you know, the way in which um, you had the moral majority really mobilized to um, legitimate and undergird rhetoric around law and order uh, as the only appropriate response for the body of Christ to take. Um, really kind of the, in alignment with a misreading of um, Romans 13, um, kind of this blind allegiance to law and order and which ultimately spilled over into zero tolerance, into three strikes you're out, into support for the death penalty, um, into uh, this really punitive theology that's not reflective of the restorative nature of God's justice and biblical justice. Um, but uh, it became this real piece to the puzzle that is still being used today. I mean, we're seeing, as we're seeing global uprisings and protests, you're seeing the language of law and order kind of resurface in, in a way that we've been down this path. And the way that it functions within the church, it, it for most people, they're not presented with the theological alternative to supporting that because this is the only way that we have order and structure within our society and our politicians who God has blessed us with, um, according to th Romans 13, regardless of if their, their, their legislation is in, is in an alignment with scripture um, and is reflective of the will and the heart of God. Um, so I just think that that has really led a lot of um, believers astray to support things that honestly, at the end of the day, there's not a biblical foundation uh, to really support. Um, and so I think that's kind of the, the theological quandary we find ourselves in. Uh, and just to give you an example why I push back against Romans 13 like that really quickly. I mean, I give a number of them in, in the actual text. But I mean, so if there was this blind allegiance to earthly authorities, let's just be honest, like uh, Moses would have been killed at birth. Jesus would have been killed at birth. Um, we wouldn't have seen uh, the midwives led by the Holy Spirit resist Pharaoh's uh, commandment to actually kill all Hebrew boys. Um, Moses' mom wouldn't have actually been complicit. His, his sister wouldn't have been complicit in saving his life. We wouldn't have seen Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego stand up to Nebuchadnezzar when he um, 
orders everybody to participate in idolatry. Um, we wouldn't, so there, there's a multitude of examples of what is a Christian supposed to do when earthly leaders promote legislation and champion ideals that are antithetical to the, to the gospel. Um, we have a moral and ethical responsibility to bear witness to our true citizenship over, um, which is in the kingdom, over kind of any kind of allegiance to state, nation, or flag. Um, and so... Yeah, no, that's so good. Straight up. Speaking our language. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> you really are. That's awesome. I think, too, one interesting uh, critique that I saw you, you made in the book, uh, which I had not thought about this, in, at least in this context, was you critiqued uh, PSA, Penal Substitutionary Atonement, um, and kind of showed some of the impact that theology has had here in, in um, you know, mass incarceration, law and order, things like that as well, uh, which I thought was, was really interesting and insightful. And uh, readers, there's another reason for you to pick up uh, Dominique's book so you can read about that, because I know uh, we have listeners that will want to hear that part for sure. So uh, real quickly, though, last question. You mentioned this, and you talked about God's justice or divine justice, and you say that divine justice is inherently restorative. Can you just kind of give us a peek into what, what you mean by that, and then we'll, uh, we'll wrap things up? Looks like your thing muted. There we go. Oh, I actually can't hear you still. Marty, can you hear Dominique at all? There can we go. Can you hear me now? There yeah, we go. there we go. Okay. There we go. Sorry. Um, I muted so when y'all were talking, you wouldn't hear background noise. Sorry. <laughs> um, but what I mean by that is um, justice that doesn't have a plan for a reintegration is just vengeance. Um, and when you actually see God's justice, God's justice is intent on restoring the breaches that uh, sin and you know crime and violations create. But God doesn't just punish people for the sake of punishment. The punishment is rooted in a bigger plan of restoration that God is up to. Um, so scripture is very clear that God was in Christ reconciling the world to God's self, um, which means that... Um, well, it means a couple of things. It means that, one, <laughs> the mission of God is not just about... Uh, broken individuals. And so when we talk about what does it mean to bear witness to the gospel, it's not just saving souls, but it's saving entire people and uh, actually tending to the brokenness in our communities. But it also means that we're supposed to be uh, seeking the brokenness in our systems and structures that continue to produce results that infringe upon the shalom that God desires all God's children to enjoy, not just some of God's children. Um, but when we talk about uh, restorative justice, I give a couple of biblical examples and walk people through uh, what this actually looks like. So, for example, when Zacchaeus uh, comes into the revelation of the depth of his sinfulness, I mean, he, he knew what he was doing, but I think there was something that happened when he actually comes face to face with Jesus and he has a deeper revelation of how much brokenness he's kind of been complicit with or actually driving as a chief tax collector. And he doesn't just say, God, you know, I'm sorry, please forgive me, I repent of my sins, he actually has to go to the next level and actually make amends for uh, the exploitation that he has been a part of. Um, and that, that amends is part of the restoring of the community because it's a reinvestment in the community in a way that actually allows the community to come out of some of these shackles uh, that have kind of been uh, leading people into generational uh, poverty and uh, intergenerational poverty and different things like that. Um, but I think, you know, one of the one of the examples that I, I think was most powerful is in the instance where Jesus encounters the woman who's caught in adultery. Um, and the law says that she should be stoned to death. Um, and then Jesus gets to chance to affirm the law and actually say, yes, stone her for her 
transgression, but Jesus enters in and says, where the, the law demands bloodshed, I insert mercy. I insert grace. Um, and he tells her to go and, you know, sin no more. But there is this insertion of grace and restoration. And he tells her to go and sin no more and re-enter into community. Like, and so that's the reintegration piece that is uh, absent from our present criminal justice system, uh, that is absent from many people's definition of justice, because if the ultimate goal and endpoint of justice is just punishment, then that is not restorative in any way, shape, or form, and not reflective of uh, biblical justice. Yeah, and you give uh, listeners, just so you know, uh, Dominique at the, in his final chapter has this whole um, list he calls like holy interruptions or holy interrupters. And he gives a whole bunch of different really awesome organizations and things that people are doing uh, to kind of move forward and, and bring about this restorative uh, call to justice that we find in scripture in the person of Jesus uh, to uh, address these issues. So I just want to let readers know that there's a, a ton of really helpful resources there in the back of your book as well, or that final chapter. Yeah, and I just say, you know, the other place where I really biblically think about this, and this is actually um, giving you all a teaser for my next book, um, is uh, looking at how John the Baptist defines repentance. Um, and it's very different than the operative way in which we engage in repentance in many of our congregations today. John says that there should be fruit in keeping with repentance. Um, so repentance isn't just an oral confession. It isn't just the uh, acknowledgement of the wrong, but it is literally a turning away from the sin, returning back to God in a way that actually produces fruit in the world. Um, and I think that's a, just a different metric of how we even think about repentance. Uh, I think uh, all too often it is just like confession, but there's a difference between confession and repentance. And so I, I really want to push us to think deeply about what does it mean for us to actually engage in biblical repentance in a way that produces fruit, kind of like what we just saw in the example of Zacchaeus, but also in a way that actually leads towards reintegration uh, for folk who have committed violations. Because at the end of the day, uh, every, when we used to gather together outside of this uh, pandemic season, um, when we would uh, gather, we preach sermons, pray prayers, and sing songs thanking God that there's nothing that we can do that can separate us from the love of our Savior. Literally nothing. And I think the reality is that that theology gets challenged when we in, engage with our criminal justice system. Like, I have men in my program who have committed vile, grotesque offenses. If I don't really believe that that is true, that there is nothing that we can do that can separate us from the love of Christ, then the way that I'm going to uh, interact with those people is going to be guarded. It's not going to be truly reflective of God's love and the power of the gospel to transform anybody. I mean, Paul, who wrote the majority of the New Testament, <laughs> used to be somebody who's out there killing Christians, like actively persecuting the church. And so I think we have to really check some of our theology because I think a lot of times we, we can make proclamations when we're in the comfort of our community or in the comfort of our con congregation, but do we actually believe those things? And I think those, those beliefs actually get challenge when we actually go into the voting booth sometimes and people are still there's so many christians who still are supporting the death penalty which at the end of the day ultimately says that certain people are beyond redemption all you can do is kill them like there's nothing gospel about that like there and so i think we have to really have some sober conversations around uh where how much our faith does or does not inform uh, our witness and how we engage in the world. And so oh, I appreciate y'all for creating space to kind of have some of these conversations. Yeah. When, when can we expect that book, Dominique? Uh, it will be out in the fall of 2021. Well, then we will have to uh, get you back on after we've read the book <laughs> and uh, have some conversations around that because I think that you're so right. Um, to, to, looking at repentance, 
I mean, just in general, is such a worthwhile thing to look at. But then I think as, as we look at it in the eye of our current climate and society, I, I think there's there's so much fruit that can be found in that. Um, but along those lines, Dominique, uh, just, I mean, this conversation was so great. I mean, I just loved uh, hearing from you. You have such wisdom. You have such knowledge. Uh, it's not based on anything other than facts. And it's not based on anything other than, you know, pure research and understanding of our past and how it affects our now. Uh, so everything you've said has been so awesome. Uh, wh where where can people find you? Uh, the beginning you had mentioned it's easy to get on board, but those resources, how can people get involved uh, and and be be a be a be a part of the of that group for change? Yeah. So um, my website is dominiquegillier.com. Uh, people can follow my author page on Facebook, uh, which is Dominique Du Bois Gilliard. Um, I'm already maxed out on friend requests. I can't be your friend, unfortunately. <laughs> but you can follow um, my author page. Um, and on Instagram, I'm at Dominique D as in dog, Gilliard. Um, and then on Twitter, I'm DD Gilliard. So you can find me all of those places. And you can also find um, there is a curriculum, a video-based curriculum uh, that is part of the seminar Seminary Now project. Uh, that was just launched uh, for my book and you can go uh, through the entire uh, book with a small group. Well, we're going to make sure to uh, post links to all of those different resources in the show notes for this week's episode when it comes out so that uh, people can get involved. And I, I do know that the people that listen to Rethinking Faith are people of action. They're not people of, of words only, but they're people that really want to get involved. And so um, as people, listeners, as you're hearing this, uh, click on the links uh, in the show notes so you can get involved too for change in our country. And, um, but man, this has been so awesome. Uh, we've really enjoyed talking with you. And um, uh, we just look forward to the next conversation with you. And uh, Josh, do you have anything else you want to add? No, this has been great. Uh, again, Dominique, thank you so much for your time. Thank you for the, the work and the effort that you put into to writing your book and helping uh, educate us all. So thank you for what you do. And we wish you the best of luck and, uh, you know, with everything you have uh, going on moving forward. All right. Thank you. Blessings to you and your listeners. Yes. Peace and blessings. And also uh, go Caps. And Blackhawks. And I'll say Blackhawks for Dominique. Too, <laughs> <laughs> all right. Peace, guys. <laughs>